says the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth and not only I but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever grace mercy and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love I rejoiced greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we've received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come and speak to you face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. And Father, we humbly pause and ask now for just the help of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, you know our bodies are perhaps just a little bit more tired this morning with losing that hour of sleep. And so we just pray that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, strengthen the weakness of our flesh, help our minds to be alert and our ears to be open and receptive. We believe that you speak, God, and that you speak through your word. So we ask now, whatever it means for each and every one of us, Prepare us to hear what the voice of your Holy Spirit would say to us personally through the word of God this morning. Teach us now by your Spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I, like some of you, uh, have very bad eyesight and uh, certainly have glasses that I wore earlier in the years, but then transitioned into, of course, contacts when I got a little older and cared about what I actually look like. Uh, thankfully, hopefully that helped me get my wife at some point. Uh, but with these contacts, I found that because my sight is so bad and it's progressively getting worse, the only way I can see clearly is if I have both contacts in my eyes. So if I were to rip one or if I were only to wear one contact, my vision is still extremely distorted. Everything's out of balance and it would quite honestly uh, really be difficult to even kind of navigate with just one contact in. I need both eyes to be clear in order to be able to see and to be able to walk safely. And the same really to some degree is true regarding love and truth. Because love and truth are kind of like two lenses, if you would, that are meant to coexist and work together so that we can see clearly and so that we can walk properly or even walk safely. Truth without love leads to harsh and brutal treatment. On the other side of that, love without truth leads to dangerous and destructive compromise. And God wants us to learn how to walk in love and walk in truth simultaneously. And that's really what this letter this morning, 2 John, 
is about. Let me give just a little bit of setting as we look through this letter together. Important to realize that during the first century, the the early days of the church, the gospel, as well as all New Testament doctrine, was predominantly spread around from place to place through what we might call traveling evangelists or traveling teachers, missionaries, who would go from location to location, bringing the gospel message, spreading New Testament doctrine. And there were no hotel chains like the Hilton or the Marriott with nice private rooms that you could rent and have some space to yourself. All there really was in that day were typically what were called inns. And these were a lot of times just rough public gathering places in a structure. And the inns in that day were known to be very carnal atmospheres. Uh, They were uh, typically characterized by drinking and partying and sexual promiscuity. And Christians, therefore, typically when they traveled, didn't not only want to be exposed to those kind of things by staying in the inn and the temptation it would bring. uh, They also didn't want to potentially jeopardize their reputation, especially if they were a traveling missionary or a teacher that they were staying, staying in a place where those kind of things were going on. So because of that, hospitality among the early days of the church was a very common thing. It was a very critical thing in a lot of ways. uh, And because of that, what would happen is it was very common as people traveled around, particularly these traveling teachers and missionaries going around spreading the word of the Lord, that believers, fellow Christians, would typically take them into their homes provide lodging and food for them, a safe environment to be in for a few days while they were in that area and doing their work. They'd be taken to their homes to supply shelter and food was a helpful thing. It kept them safe. And it was even customary to give to them perhaps maybe even some financial support or some food as they then progressed onward with their journey bringing about the word of the Lord. The problem is some of these traveling teachers in that day were false teachers And they were bringing around false doctrine, errant things that were not in line with the word of God or the gospel message. So to support and help those traveling teachers really would be a very unhealthy thing and it would wrongly contribute to the spread of false doctrine. And it seems this is perhaps what John's concerned about, that discernment would be used and that love must be balanced with truth. That the two must go together. It seems this is what John's addressing. You notice back in verse 10 and 11, if I could draw your attention there again, what John's saying there, sort of the crux of this. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the sound doctrine of Christ, don't receive him into your house or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Again, it appears that to show an effort of being loving and compassionate that sometimes truth was being set aside by the Christians. And at times, in a desire to want to be so loving and kind and helpful, perhaps it seems this Christian woman or her church, which is maybe what John's addressing here, in an effort to be loving and kind, were forsaking truth and were not using discernment and were welcoming and housing some of these false teachers and supporting them. And so John instructs them that this is unhealthy and wrong because love cannot set aside truth. And he's going to say here what's important is to love in truth. To love in 
truth. This is an important principle, not only who John's speaking to, but it's an important principle for all of us to understand the value of how these things are supposed to coexist in harmony. Truth and love, love and truth, and that we are to love people with truth as the basis and the balance to that. So look with me as he begins the letter. He opens up introducing himself, the Apostle John. We, we know this from the type of writing that exists from 1 John, the prior letter. And notice John refers to himself here as simply the elder. Now, that could be just a reference to John's age at this point. We believe that John's somewhere upward around his 90s in that general reign. So certainly I would say it's fair to say that's a reference to him being elderly and older and aged. It could just be a reference to that. Or also John could be making a reference to his spiritual office and position. Because we know in the New Testament, the term elder is a New Testament title for a spiritual leader or someone who was an overseer among the church. And John was both, at this point, an aged man chronologically, and John also held the office of being a elder, a spiritual leader, a pastoral figure providing oversight and teaching for the church. So he was someone who could speak with spiritual maturity, with wisdom and with God's authority. And we see who he addresses the letter to as we go on in verse 1. He says that the letter was to the elect lady and her children. The elect lady and her children. Now, there's dispute here over perhaps specifically who John is addressing this to. For starters, first of all, that word elect there, remember the word elect, again from a New Testament perspective, is always a reference to God's children and a reference to those who have been elected or chosen by God to be saved, to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to become children of God. And some believe that John's referring here to a literal Christian woman, the elect lady, a woman who had been chosen by God that was living for the Lord. And some believe he's writing to a literal Christian lady and her children that maybe he knew. So he's writing some personal correspondence here. And we're kind of reading mail from John to this woman. He's trying to help spiritually. Others believe that the elect lady and her children is a reference to an unnamed church. And that John doesn't name the church because of Christian persecution in that day, wanting to protect their identity, that he writes just using sort of, if you would say, figurative language and uses a, a feminine uh, uh, sort of personification of the church. Uh, again, we sometimes use figurative language in the feminine tense to refer to things. You know, some people even call their boat by a feminine reference. They say, Captain, she's ready to sail. Uh, we know in the Old Testament that Israel was referred to as the wife of, of God. And that in the New Testament, as Christians, the church, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. So it is a possibility that this could be a reference to a church that he's just not naming. He's using figurative language. And so the elect lady and her children, the children would then be the members of the church, if you would. So it could be a reference to either or, quite honestly, it could be a reference to both a literal lady who had a church that met in her house. Uh, and that was a common thing that took place as well. Either way, the lessons still apply the same. He says to the elect lady in her church, verse one, whom I love in the truth or love in truth, excuse me, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth, which abides 
in us and will be with us forever. So as the introduction of the letter starts, I hope you can tell just by reading, already we notice this repeated reference, do you see it there, of truth mingled with love. You find this consistent repetition already. John's expressing his love that he has for them as well as the love that was shared among them as God's children. And you notice that three times in verses one and two already, he repeatedly emphasizes how this love shared among them was balanced by and rooted in truth. Do you see it there in the text in verse one and two? He's expressing his concern and his love for them. And he says, you are whom I love in truth. Truth, And then he speaks of the love that was among them, among all those who've known the truth. And then he says, because of the truth, which abides and dwells in us. So again, we notice love and truth are not to be separated. They're supposed to be living together in harmony. They're supposed to coexist together. And as John talks about his love for them and the love they shared together as children of God, as believers, there's this coexistence of love and truth and harmony because for true and proper love to exist it must be it should be in truth this is what proper love is the practice and the allowance of lies or deception or of what is wrong listen is not loving Allowing what's wrong or living a lie or believing a lie is not loving at all. Truth, also we notice, is the binding and unifying force in human relationships. John's love for them was a love rooted in truth. And notice the love they shared was shared among all those who, he says, have known the truth. So he speaks of how believers... As Christians share this common bond, this relationship, and they're lovingly uh, connected by a shared knowledge of the truth that they all have together. And it's that common knowledge of the truth that put them on the same path and strengthened their commitment. You could say relationships are best built when they are built upon truth, when they're built upon the truth. Even with two people, when two people are not being truthful with one another, that's no basis for a relationship or or that's no health to a relationship that causes a deterioration of a relationship. Relationships are to be built upon and are binded together and unified by truth. And it's because of the shared knowledge of the truth that these believers had this relationship because proper and appropriate love is to be expressed within the boundaries, you could say, of what's truthful of what is true. Truth must be the basis that love is built on. And when you remove truth and what is right is compromised, you don't really have love anymore at that point. And this is important, especially in the culture that we live in today, what people want to quantify at times as love or loving that is outside the boundaries of what is true or what is truthful. Please listen. There may be feelings and desires involved at times But if there is no boundary of truth within those feelings and desires, that's not real love. That's not real love. You know, people even say in regards to, you know, their romantic expressions, oh, I love you. I want to make love to you. And it's their boyfriend or their girlfriend or they're they're not married. and, And well, we're making love. No, you're not. You're making a mess. That's not love. Because love exists within a boundary of truth. 
And the boundaries of truth is what makes love safe and proper and healthy. And what is defined as love is not biblically or really love in any way from God's perspective because notice he says in here in verse 1 that we love in truth. That tells me that God's perspective of love is not based just upon sentimental feelings and emotions alone. That's where we often make a great mistake. We think that sentimental feelings or our emotions are the basis of love. Love is much deeper than emotions. It's much more in depth than just sentimental feeling. Love cares about genuinely what is best for the other person. That's what real love is. That's God's perspective of love. And to believe a lie or live in error is not good and healthy for any person. So it's wrong to think we're being loving if we set aside the truth. If we have to set aside the truth to think we're being loving, that really is a confusion of God's perspective. To love someone is to love them in the truth. And that may even mean at times upsetting how they feel about us because we honor the truth and that we maintain the truth because that is genuinely what's best for all of us. John also speaks in verse 2 of the vital importance of truth. Do you see what he says about truth in verse 2? He says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice that. Truth has an eternal quality to it. It's permanent. John says the truth which will be with us forever. It's in us and it will be with us forever. So truth is permanent. It's unchanging. Truth does not alter with time. Truth does not alter with culture or society's new perspectives on what is right and what is wrong. Truth will be with us. It's an abiding, eternal thing. It's the same forever. It remains the same forever. So what is true from God's viewpoint has always been true and it will always remain true. It's not something that's alterable. Truth will be with us forever. That makes truth very valuable. Would you agree, therefore, then to uphold? And that is what's loving. And the truth, John says here in verse 2, has become a permanent or you could say a personal part of the believer, he says the truth abides or remains, dwells in us, and it will be with us forever. So how has the truth become a personal part of our lives? Well, just think through. What did Jesus say in John 14? He said, I am the way and the truth. So if you have Jesus, the truth is a permanent, forever abiding part of your life. Jesus also said as well in John 17 when he was praying to his father, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So as the word of God is with you, the truth abides within you. And Jesus said in John 14 that when he departed and went back to heaven, he said the spirit of truth who dwells with you will be in you. So whether it's through this, the presence of the Son of God or the Word of God or the Spirit of God, a Christian, a believer, has become a vessel of the truth. And that truth will be with us and we are to uphold that. And it's that truth that empowers and enables you and I to love people in a manner that is consistent with God's will and with God's way of loving people. He says, verse 3, going on, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, again, in truth and love. So notice God the Father and the Lord Jesus, his Son, they want to extend to us. John gives a greeting here, grace and mercy and peace. Grace is God's 
favor and his help and his blessing, even though we don't deserve it. Uh, his mercy is the fact that God does not treat you as you deserve according to your sins and failures, that he shows mercy and restraint. And his peace speaks of that eternal rest that God can give, that we're, we're assured we're at rest within, we're at peace with God because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and he says here that these are things that God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, grace, mercy, and peace, he wants these things to be with you. They come from the Father and from the Son. Notice these are expressions of the love of God which is a perfect love. However, as God expresses his love in giving us grace and mercy and peace, notice those expressions of God's love are supplied within the boundaries of truth. Because do you see what he says at the end of the verse there? He says, these things come from the Father and Son. How? In truth. They come from the Father and from his Son in truth and love. Again, the two being tied together. He goes on, verse 4, to say, I rejoiced greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth, just that we've received commandment from the Father. So as John writes here, he gives a little word of encouragement as he begins his letter here uh, to those he's writing to. And apparently at some point, John had somehow met up with either a few of the children of this literal Christian woman or some of the members of the church that maybe he's writing to here. But when John had met up with them, notice he was delighted to see what he observed. He says there, I found some of your children walking in truth, even as the father had given commandment to us. He noticed they were living lives consistent with the truth of God's word. And this brought John great pleasure to his soul it, it caused him he says to rejoice greatly and he wants to write and encourage he says i want you to be encouraged man i rejoiced i found some of your children away from home base whether that's the household that they grew up in or the church that they were part of he says i found them out in the world and they were walking in the truth and they were honoring the truth and living a life consistent with the word of God, observing and walking in truth. And can I just say, man, what a wonderful thing, whether it's our children who depart from our home that we sought to train up and raise in the truth, or whether it's just the church being out in the world away from a gathering like this, when, when they are found walking in truth. To be able to have someone to, hey, I, I saw your son. He was, man, he was, he was walking in the truth. I saw him honoring the Lord and he's living a life consistent with the word of God. Or, or, or to, to hear that someone who outside of the boundaries of, of the church, that they're out in the world and exposed to all they are and yet they're walking in truth. They're honoring the truth. They're living out the truth of God's word. Because listen, the reality is this. The whole purpose of us learning the truth is so that we live the truth. God help us if we begin to think that all this is is a lecture hall. So we go there every Sunday and we listen to this lecture and we learn a few new truths and we nod our head and go, yeah, I like that truth. That's a good truth. And, and, and we learn all the truth. Listen, we're supposed to live the truth. It's been said before that, you know, what's in bonded leather is supposed to become shoe leather. We're supposed to live the Bible. 
We're supposed to live the Word of God, to walk it out. That's the whole ultimate intention. It's one small step to listen. But this morning, are you walking in the truth? What you're learning, are you living it out? Are you practicing it? This is ultimately what God desires for us. Now, to balance this idea of walking in truth with walking in love, he says, verse 5 there, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. John, understanding the value and the importance of love as well, wanting to keep things in balance, he's not just asking. Notice verse 5, he says, I'm pleading with you, remain loving towards one another. Don't get over caught up in truth and hyper-emphasized truth where you start becoming brutal and unloving and, and you're, you're right, but you're dead right. And, and, and you're so right that you're cruel in the way that you go about it. He says, no, no, no. He says, I'm not asking, I'm pleading. It's always been, he says, God's heart that we love one another and that we walk in love. This command, he says, it's a familiar command. It's something you've had from the beginning. He says there in verse five, it's not as though I'm writing to you a new commandment when I tell you to love one another, though you honor the truth that you keep loving one another. And again, this was a command that existed in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, God said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, nor shall you take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. And then of course, when Jesus came at the uh, onset of his ministry and the start of the church, Jesus instructed us to love as well. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That Jesus commanded that we would love each other as the body of Christ, as the church, as children of God, with the same way that he loved us that we would take that same love that we've experienced from Jesus and we would express that love towards one another. And listen, that, that was critical, not only just beginning with his initial 12 disciples. And when you look at the, the 12 men that Jesus drew together to be his disciples, there was potential for a nuclear explosion there. I mean, the difference in personalities and backgrounds and dynamics, and, and, but their bond was Jesus. And he said, so I'm commanding you Love one another. Love one another. Now, let me just say this in relation to verse 5. As we see here, notice, please, if you would, that we find here loving one another spoken of as a commandment. Now, that's interesting to me. Question, is it possible to command someone to love? Can you command somebody to love? Well, the answer is yes, if you really understand what love means. Because love at its root foremost, as I said earlier, is not an emotion or a feeling. Because you can't command someone to feel a certain way about somebody. I want to command you, you need to feel this way towards another person. You can try. I know how I feel about them. And it ain't like that. I feel very differently about them. The way they treat me. or who. They, so you can't command someone to feel a certain emotion, but you can command someone to love when you truly understand that love's not about a feeling. It's not about emotion. Love is an act of the will. It's a choice to unconditionally love someone even when they're not lovable. 
even maybe when they're at their worst, which means that you can then command to love as God commands us to love, because that means despite how we may feel about another person or feel towards them, we can still love them unconditionally in how we treat them that we relate to them in a loving way and we treat them with the love of God, we make a choice to express the unconditional agape love of God that we've experienced to them. And we show that love for them because we know it's something we do out of obedience. This is what it means for followers of Christ to love one another, can I say this, biblically. Biblically. That we understand how to live out the Christian life. Listen, I feel sad for people who sit home and watch church online. Oh, I don't. I just watch in my pajamas and drink my cup of coffee. Look, you're great. You're learning the truth. But how do you learn how to live the truth? Come hang out for one or two meetings with a group of people. Now you've got to figure out how to, how to live out the truth. How do you love someone? How do you forgive someone? How do you show kindness to someone and patience and bear with someone? How else do you learn that? unless you live it out and you dwell with the people of God. Again, so despite how we feel, we can become a vessel of Christ's love. Now, we may ask, well, how in the world do I do that? I mean, that's, that's really hard sometimes. Well, God answers our question in verse 6. He says, this is love. This is how you do it. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. That as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So the Bible says... Okay, do you want to know how to love? God commands you to love. No matter how you feel, God's commanding me and you to love. And he says, this is how you do it. This is love. This is how we love. Very simply put, he says it's by walking according to the commandments of God's word. As we live in obedience to what the word of God tells us, we walk in love toward God and show our love for God. And we also walk in love toward one another. John says, here's God's command. As you've heard the truth, now walk in the truth. Again, the same idea here. Don't just listen to the truth. Live the truth by an act of faith and submission. We take the command of God and we put it into practice. You know, how does that look practically? Well, Jesus, remember, said in John's gospel, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now that's simple, one simple statement, but it's very profound in what Jesus is saying. If you love me, obey my commandments, which very simply declares that Jesus understands to say that we love Jesus and not obey his commandments is a contradiction. Oh, I love the Lord. But then we disregard what the word of the Lord says. Jesus says, you may say that you love me, but you're not showing me that you love me. Because the way that we show Jesus that we love him, the degree that we obey Jesus is that demonstration of our love for the Lord. That's how we show our love to Jesus. That's how we express our love to the Lord by obeying his word. So when Jesus or the word of God as a whole commands me not to do something, if I love the Lord, I honor that prohibition and I don't do that. Or if the word of God or Jesus commands me to do something, then I put into practice what he asks of us. So that applies as well, certainly regarding obeying this command to love one another. We look at texts in the New Testament. What does the word of God say regarding human relationships 
And then we put those things into practice. For example, Colossians 3 he says, The elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility, meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So, so how do I show love? How do I honor God's commandment to love? I take those statements in that verse and I go, okay, how can I put that into practice with my wife, with my children, with my church family, with my friends, with unsaved people? How do I actually take that and practice it and obey it and live it out? I mean, it's so easy. We all love to listen to the lecture. But a lot of us, we don't like to do the lab work. Remember in biology or those you'd have lecture and then you'd have the lab where you put it into practice. Christians love the lecture. We're all lectured out, man. I mean, today we have podcasts. And look, I'm a Bible study junkie just like the rest of you. I got an addiction, I confess. Love to listen to the Word of God. But living the Word of God, that's the lab work. And he says, this is love that we put into practice. What we hear, he says, what you've heard that you would walk in it. Now, after establishing the love of God and obedience to his word are connected, John issues a warning in verse 7 that discernment was therefore needed for false followers of Christ or false teachers. He says, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist so john lovingly clarifies and i use the word lovingly because it is loving he lovingly clarifies in verse 7 that discernment is needed so it's a warning that we need discernment because there are false followers of christ and there are those who are not sound healthy teachers but are false teachers john says and you notice here he says many deceivers have gone out into the world that's just a reality just a reality. Even as there is counterfeit money in circulation with real and genuine money, there will always be the circulation and operation of those who are not genuine Christians and those who are false counterfeit teachers in circulation among all of the ranks of Christianity in the church. And so he says we must recognize the existence. And one way the Bible says here to identify a deceiver Please don't miss this. How do you identify a deceiver and be discerning? They hold a wrong belief regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. You see verse 7, what he says there? He says, these deceivers are those, he says, who deny Jesus as coming in the flesh. In other words, they deny the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. They may speak of the existence of the person of named Jesus and that Jesus came and did good things, but they do not teach that, listen, they do not teach that Jesus was God who became man and lived on this earth, God in human flesh among us to save us. They detract from the fundamental truth that Jesus is God he became man, took a second nature, that he lived a sinless life, he died in our place to provide salvation for mankind, that he arose from the dead, that he ascended back into heaven, and that he is coming again a second time in bodily form as he returns to this earth as king of kings. 
and they deny this fundamental fact. And what the Bible is saying here is if someone denies who Jesus truly is, according to the truth revealed of him in the word of God, that it does not matter what titles they use. It does not matter how many followers they have. It does not matter what they say or even how holy they appear or how nice they are. He says in verse 7, look at it, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Someone who is opposed, anti, against the things of Christ because they're deceiving people spiritually and they're acting against Christ and his true purposes of how a person comes to know God and to be saved through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it's extremely unloving to misguide someone spiritually. And this is what John is saying. That's not loving. To misguide someone spiritually. Look, it's wrong and damaging to misguide and deceive a person about something that's trivial or earthly. How much more damaging, destructive, and unloving is it to misguide someone spiritually or ultimately eternally? This is why John said in his first letter, 1 John 4, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We must accept that reality, that we're not to just believe anything and everyone, even if they use the name Jesus, or they throw around some biblical references, that we must verify that that is truly and they are truly genuinely of God. Now, he cautions then verse 8 saying, look to yourselves, your own spiritual condition, that we do not lose the things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. So he cautions them. He says, pay attention. Pay attention to your own spiritual condition, lest you suffer loss of your full eternal reward, he says. Now, pay attention here because access into heaven, the Bible teaches, is a free gift. It says in Romans 6 that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So access into heaven, eternal life, is a free gift, the inheritance of heaven, that we receive by putting our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and by receiving that gift of grace that gives us eternal life. However, the Bible also teaches we have an ability to acquire eternal reward. To be able to experience reward for how we serve the Lord after we came to know him or the works we did as his followers where we might hear Jesus say to us one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That we might receive a crown that the Bible speaks about. Jesus said in Revelation 22, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now it's that reward that full reward of walking in the truth, following Jesus faithfully, John warns here that we not diminish. John's saying don't diminish and don't allow yourself by poor choices or being misguided by someone who's not teaching the truth to miss out on the opportunity to experience the full reward of living a faithful, fruitful Christian life the way God intended you to. So he's cautioning how sad to think of losing things you've already worked for or things that you could obtain and experience eternally if you had just faithfully kept walking with Christ and lived for him. John understands by condoning or cooperating with false doctrine or those who would misguide and pull you off track, you run the risk of losing the full reward 
of following Jesus Christ that you could have experienced eternally. And so John here is cautioning, beware, he says, constantly pay attention to your spiritual life and your condition so that you're not misled by spiritual laziness or, or even by just wanting to be loving and you let some wrong influence pull you off track and rob you of God's best for your spiritual life. I think the point here simply becomes this. It's never good to lose ground or territory that you've conquered spiritually. Never. It's, he says, lest you lose those things you've worked for, but instead you might receive a full reward. Listen, perhaps through walking with Jesus and obeying the word of God and dependence on the Holy Spirit, you've obtained to a certain status in your spiritual life. The Bible's saying here, be careful. Stay on guard. It's never healthy. It's never good to lose territory that you've already conquered spiritually. And don't let anything and don't let anyone rob you of God's best for your spiritual life. That they would take from you everything that you've already experienced and what God intends. He's saying, I believe, don't let anything pull you backwards spiritually. Don't let anyone pull you backward. Don't let anyone rob you. Stand your ground. Well, after warning to guard ourselves, in verse 9, John identifies again, how do we tell the genuine versus the ungenuine? He says, verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Notice again, he makes a separation here. Two distinct groups or categories so that we can be wise in whose teachings we subscribe to and whose teachings we would submit ourselves to or support and whose we should not. And again, you notice the root issue in verse 9 there? The litmus test. Where do they stand regarding, he says it twice, the doctrine of Christ? That is, the doctrine, what the Bible teaches to be true of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the son of God, born uh, of a virgin, conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. His teachings, his miracles, his ministry. That he died sacrificially for us. That he rose again, ascended into heaven. All that's written in the New Testament regarding sound doctrine of the person of Christ. That that is the central issue. And he says, he who remains in this doctrine of Christ, he says, verse 9 there, is truly connected to the Father and they're a safe person to follow or they're a sound teacher to listen to or to support. But he says, whoever transgresses and does not continue in the doctrine of Christ, God's not leading them. They're not of God, he says. Here's what's interesting. That word that's used there, transgress, he who transgresses the doctrine of Christ, it's a term that means to push beyond the boundary of something to go beyond a set limit. And what it's saying is this, that the word of God is the boundary. This is the boundary. And when someone goes beyond the boundary of the word of God regarding what they are saying is true about Christ or Christianity or Christian living and they press past and they go outside of the boundaries of the word of God, that's a false teacher. That's someone who's not sound to listen to. That's errant doctrine and perhaps just a pseudo-Christian cult. We must always remember when somebody's presenting ideas outside the limits of Scripture, that's a red flag. 
When somebody says, hey, well, we have this new revelation or this better book, this newer updated revelation from God, that's a red flag. I don't care if they call themselves the Mormons, the Church of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. I don't care if they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. It's pseudo-Christian cultic teaching. It's outside the boundaries and limits. Ask them, who is Jesus Christ? And if they answer anything other than what is sound doctrine in the Word of God, it's not healthy. It's not safe. It's not something that should be subscribed to. Safety is found in the boundaries of the limits of the Word of God. That's safe teaching. That's what's safe to subscribe to. So he says, verse 10, as we saw earlier, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Don't receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So John gives an instruction. Listen, if someone comes to you and they're not bringing sound doctrine, he says, cut this stuff out of what we want to be loving. John says, that's not loving. That's destructive what they're bringing. And if you're going to jeopardize your spiritual understanding or your children's spiritual understanding or the church's spiritual understanding, he's saying you're not to extend customary hospitality to these people or give them a platform to share their spiritual ideas. He says here, don't even receive them into your home because the threat of that is dangerous. And worse, he says, if you do, from God's perspective, you're not only condoning what they're doing, you're cooperating, he says, with the spread of their evil deeds. You are assisting them in spreading false doctrine, he says. So he gives this very strong warning and instruction here to be cautious in light of this thing. And I think this is a great verse to keep in mind for us. How might it apply to us in our family, in our household, in our churches? That we're, we're wise and careful that if someone brings and promotes an unbiblical doctrine, we should not graciously welcome that. We should not be, you know, someone who's trying to give ear to that. Or again, because not only are we cooperating with what we're doing, let's say someone comes to my house and I welcome them in to entertain and listen to their little spiel. Well, I may know what's sound, but what if my neighbor sees me invite them into my house and my neighbor say, hey, that guy next door, that's Pastor Tony. And he let those, can we come in and tell you what our book says? And so they say, well, maybe we should give those people a listen too. And then basically I just cooperated with and helped with their eternal deception. So he says, be wise, love in truth, be someone who uses wisdom. And look how John concludes his letter, verse 12. Have many things, he says, more to write to you, but I do not wish to write so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full the children of your elect sister greet you. Interesting, John wanted to say more, but he says, I'm going to wait until I can say it in person. You know, one commentator said this. I thought it was great. I wrote it down, this quote from a commentator on this section. He said, written letters were considered an inferior substitute for personal presence or speech in person. And writers sometimes concluded their letters with the promise to discuss matters face to face. It was considered an inferior form of communication to write letters as compared to face-to-face -face communication. You know, let me just say, writing has its place and its purpose. It has its value in correspondence and communication. But there is no more loving way to communicate than to look somebody in the eyes and to talk to them face-to-face. Because -face. then you hear the tone of their voice. 
and you can see their expressions and you're showing love and respect for one another as you're communicating face to face, that is the best way to communicate. The truest and most loving way to communicate is to speak face to face. To me, this is God's version of Facebook. Right there. Live according to the truth of this book and love people enough. Talk to them face to face. You know, in this age of all this, like, we text people and write emails and Facebook and everybody hides behind electronic communication. Goodness gracious. Do we not love people enough to show due respect, to talk to people face to face? To have a little FaceTime, genuinely, realistically, to talk to people, to engage with people, and especially if it's something important and essential, face-to-face, that's what's loving, and that's where, and I believe if we would do that, we'd probably have a lot more truth, a lot less deception and misunderstanding, and we'd have a lot more love experience in our relationships. Amen?